Welcome to the 365th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome science, technology, and society scholar Hyoman Kim to discuss COVID, science, and culture in South Korea. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Today is a special COVID Calls episode at 6 p.m. Korea time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October 26th, 2021, there are 4,954,582 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, a scientist who came out of retirement to help fight COVID loses his own battle. Written by Lindsay Coulter and appeared August 11th, 2021 in the Washington Post. Thomas Hodge III logged in from his hospital bed for what would be his last weekly Zoom meeting with some 200 scientific collaborators. Gaunt and unshaven, he conferred with the group on how to defeat the country's latest surge of COVID-19. The virus Hodge's body was battling a second time. The prominent immunologist died two days later of complications from the disease, from COVID-19. One state away, Mere hours later, a beloved granddaughter succumbed to kidney cancer. He was 69, she was six. Dad hadn't been well, but he didn't want anyone focusing on him, said Leslie Turner, one of Hodge's daughters and one of Isabella Bondell's aunts. His spirit broke when he couldn't fix Izzy. Hodge, former director of immunogenetics at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, spent decades fighting diseases such as AIDS and Ebola. He opted out of retirement in early 2020 to focus on the latest global public health threat and co-founded the Crisis Science Collaborative, a who's who of research and medicine that has since met virtually almost every week to share insights and developments on the pandemic. He was an ardent proponent of the country's mass vaccination effort, yet he cautioned against relying too heavily on the vaccines. He also warned against abandoning precautions such as masking and social distancing. He wanted people to wake up, to observe how serious this pandemic is, recounted his crisis science co-founder, Steve Winston, former chief scientist of the Idaho National Laboratory. His home on St. Simon's Island, Georgia, Hodge beat the virus last year. He hoped that bout would stave off a future infection, especially because a medical condition meant he could not get vaccinated. Where he was again exposed to the virus is something his family will never know for certain. Despite his vulnerability, he was part of the vigil at Izzy's hospital bedside in Charleston, South Carolina, as her condition deteriorated. The little girl who loved unicorns and butterflies had been diagnosed with stage four cancer 13 months earlier. 
Like many men of medicine and academia, Hodge's obituary noted he confronted sobering truths about the limitations of the human body. When it came to COVID, Hodge took nothing lightly. He spoke out against Georgia's loosening of state restrictions in May 2020, calling the move premature. It is too soon in the midst of this pandemic, he told the Brunswick News. And he kept up his public education efforts, holding lengthy conversations with his pastor that their church, St. Simon's a Presbyterian, videotaped and posted for members and the local community. First thing is, get a vaccine, Hodge urged in January, sitting in front of a whiteboard he used to explain what was available and how it works. He sought to tackle the virus from all angles, stressing the need for new ways both to prevent infection and to treat the illness it can cause. He was a proponent of an air treatment that aims to reduce viral particles from COVID, as well as an experimental blood purification device. That reflected the scope of his career. During the height of the AIDS pandemic, Hodge served as section chief of molecular immunology at the CDC's National Center for Infectious Diseases. He also held positions at the University of Alabama, University of Georgia, and Emory University. His name appears on more than 100 peer-reviewed publications and book chapters. There are some people who, when they pass on, make us feel the overall intelligence and kindness in the world is remarkably less without them, said crisis science member Alexander F. Moore, an associate professor of environmental health at Long Island University. Tom was one of those people. The world and we are less without him, and I'm terribly saddened by the loss. Still, I'm grateful for whatever little time I was allowed to learn from him. His curiosity was never quite satisfied, his wife of 40 years recounted. When their third daughter was born, he kept the placenta for research. Kathy Hodge also remembered her husband's kindness. One Christmas Eve before they had children, he had driven back to his lab to retrieve something and passed an inebriated man stumbling down the street. He took him home to ensure his safety. He had a big personality and made a lot of friends, she said. In the past month, Georgia has seen, and this article again came from earlier this year in 2021, in the past month, Georgia has seen a spike in COVID cases. As in other parts of the country, hospitals are again overwhelmed. Hodge again fell ill in mid-July and spent his birthday as a patient. He died July 31st at a facility that's part of Southeast Georgia Health System, where the number of COVID patients increased sharply. Since his loss and that of Izzy, their extended family is trying to make sense of the double tragedies. All are holding fast to something that Winston, the crisis science co-founder, shared in a tribute. His daughter observed that perhaps Izzy no longer had to be scared because granddaddy, as she knew him, was waiting on the other side of the Great Divide to provide the solace that he no longer could from this side. The article was a scientist who came out of retirement to help fight COVID loses his own battle, appeared in the Washington Post, August 11th. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest to you, Hilman Kim. Hilman Kim is an associate professor in the School of Liberal Arts of the Ulsan National Institute of Science and Technology in South Korea. Her research interests include the co-production of knowledge, values, and identities, and authority around techno-science. She has performed 
excuse me, she has performed research projects in the field of public engagement with science and technology. She's the co-author or author of many articles. I'll just name a couple. She's the co-author of an article, recent article, Public Deliberation on South Korean Nuclear Power Plants, How Can Lay Knowledge Resist Against Expertise, which appeared in the East Asian, the Journal of East Asian Science and Technology, and Women and Men in Computer Science, Geeky Proclivities, College Rank, and Gender in Korea. It's got to be one of the best article titles I've mm -hmm. seen in a long time. Also appeared in the Journal of East Asian Science and Technology. Hyun Kim, it's great to see you on COVID calls. Thanks for making time to talk today. Oh, you too, Scott. Thank you for having me here. I'd like to start the way I generally do, find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. Right. So as you introduced me, uh, I work in Ulsan National Institute of Science and Technology. Ulsan is a southeastern city of Korea. And I actually live in a nearby city, Busan. And I receive text message almost every day from Busan Metropolitan Government. So the message I received today, it shows there were 40 confirmed cases as of 11 a.m. You've been receiving those text messages throughout the pandemic? Yes, I think so. Yes. Sometimes I do not look because, you know, it just comes so frequently. But today I checked. I'm in Dejan and uh, we get them every day at six o'clock hmm. uh, and sometimes more frequently than that. And when I first moved here in February, it was quite startling to get that kind of messaging because coming from the United States, we really had nothing like that at all. Mm -hmm. But over time, you become maybe not used to it is the right word, but it's just part of the daily activity. As I said, I sometimes do not even look, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a memory of the, of the pandemic, something that's particularly resonant to you about this time. Mm, right, so um, it was in the early phase, right? Uh, I was talking with many students and sometimes uh, my colleagues, professors. And one thing I found out was um, young students were telling me like, oh, I'm not really afraid of you know, getting COVID-19, actually. I'm more afraid of, you know, uh, becoming known as the so-called confirmed case and thus as public nuisance. And then, you know, senior professors were basically saying the same thing. And what they added to their comments was, this is a secret kind of. And maybe this is just me. Maybe this is just my generation. But then, you know, so many people from diverse backgrounds were basically saying the same thing that really hit me. And that kind of, I think, inspired me uh, to write uh, an article about COVID-19. It's uh, now under review. That, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, that early phase of COVID and mm -hmm. When things started to happen here in South Korea, you, you know, your assessment of the government's actions, I mean, it's even those those details, those anecdotes you were just saying mm. um, are really powerful because it implies there was, you know, strong social pressure already in place, mm -hmm. you know, um, but I wonder how the government, how you assessed the government's activities in those early, in that early phase. Right. So that's actually one of the, the topics I address in my uh, submitted article. And um, I 
don't necessarily see that it was just the government uh, which put pressure upon people. It was really kind of emergent upon so many uh, situations and, as I said, many people uh, who thought maybe it's just me who's uh, you know feeling this much social pressure. Uh, but then also you know newspapers always talking about confirmed cases and also uh, how many of them were so-called super spreaders, right? And also um, I just looked it up and last year, so 2020, October 26th, there were about 90 confirmed cases and uh, all news articles were talking passionately about how much of it um, is about, uh, is really, uh, from abroad inflow cases. So they are not you know, really Korean cases, right? Yeah. So, you know, in those kinds of situations, if you are one of you know Korean Korean confirmed cases, right? And if you are known as uh, super spreaders, you know, it depends on so many circumstances, right? Maybe it was one of those days you met many friends. Maybe it was one of those days you were traveling. So with that kind of perceived risks, I think people uh, expressed that kind of fear especially in the early phase. And the, um, the mask issue early on, mm. what was your assessment of that? You know, in the United States, we got um, very limited information about how important it was to wear masks. And mm. then the health authorities, the federal health authorities came in very strong and said by March that people should be doing that. Um, but Americans perceived that, not all, but some perceived that as almost a reversal or confusing. I think maybe what it indicated was the science was, they were learning the science in real time and trying to communicate as best they could. I'm curious mm -hmm. how, you, how you saw that issue of masks here in Korea. It's actually so complicated, yes. I think yeah. mm, in Korea, there were so much more confusion than is usually known to uh, the US or Europe or uh, outside of Korea, uh, because uh, it is simply thought, it, it tends to be simply uh, thought that, you know, Korean people were ready to accept masks, but it really was not uh, because uh, the guidelines uh, for mask wearing in Korea changed a lot. Uh, I think you will remember if you were here, you know, from last year, right? Uh, at the beginning, um, Korean CDC, was also against uh, putting masks onto everyone because uh, the rationale was really like the CDC. Uh, masks are for others, not to protect yourself, right? So people who already caught COVID-19, maybe it makes more sense, you know, to mask those people, but not all the people, you know, in the public. And there's also risks of not properly wearing masks. Maybe you will be, you know, more contaminated by touching your mask, something like that, you know? And all those, you know, remarks were prevalent in Korea too, not just in the US. And people were confused because um, Korean CDC was saying something and the president was saying the other, and also Korean uh, uh, Food and Drug Administration was saying the other things. So there were lots of confusions, but uh, one important difference was, I think um, already since the mid 2000s in Korea, uh, it was quite common to stock face masks in your households. And that has nothing to do with COVID-19. It had much more to do with uh, air pollution. So, you know, what I'm trying to say is um, 
we tend to focus on the differences so frequently when we discuss COVID-19 in Korea, in the US, or in so many other countries. But then uh, we kind of forget how these COVID-19 responses had been in so much flux, fluctuation, uh, and also um, how the, the, the standard of risk has changed a lot within the same country as well. One of the themes I know you were tracking throughout the pandemic is one that I've actually talked about on COVID calls also with Hyung Sub Choi and mm -hmm. Jiwon Hyun earlier um, in the year. And that's um, this idea that was promoted in Western media. It was promoted in the UK by mm -hmm. political leaders and in the United States, certainly by political leaders, um, that first of all, sort of like flattening Asia. So there's sort of like, there's an Asian response to COVID mm -hmm. and, and that there's a so-called sort of authoritarian advantage that, that right. these are cultures that when the government says do something, people get in line. And, and mm -hmm. I found that very distressing in part because it's like completely geographically moronic. I mean, it sort of mm -hmm. says Asia is one place and, and that's a problem. But, but I think it's, it, some people use that cynically. I think others in the West tried to use that as a rallying point or a way for people in the United States, for example, to look at a what was perceived to be a successful response to COVID right. and say, we should be more, we should do that, whatever they're doing, mm -hmm. let's, mm -hmm. let's do that. Again, it's very culturally complicated because it depends which data points you pull and at what point, as you just said, of the Korean response you want to focus on. If you respond, if you focus on January of 2020, you're going to see something different from March mm. of 2020. So I wonder if I could get you to expand on this on this issue of the so-called authoritarian uh, advantage, what you think about that and why that idea got stuck in, in the United States a little bit in the pandemic. Right, Scott. Uh, I think you explained nicely uh, about this so-called Asian authoritarian advantage narrative. And that narrative was not just made by Western media. Uh, that narrative was uh, quite widespread um, by Korean intellectuals as well. And let me just read uh, one excerpt, excerpt from The Guardian. Uh, I think this article came out back in May 2020. Quote, how did South Korea contain its coronavirus outbreak so effectively while the, while the UK floundered. Their powerfully successful contact tracing scheme relied basically on state surveillance, as the UK does not have state surveillance. They were able to access phone and credit card data and work backwards through any infected person's life and outwards from any point along it. And this is an interesting part. We, the UK, we are a different country with a different population distribution and different history. I, I really loved that this part. Yeah. This uh, you know slightly condescending and proud uh, kind of statement. Yes, yes, but it's very hard not to look at the end results and say that the means were not justified. Difficult not to look at 259 deaths in Korea versus more than 40,000 and not agree that desperate times call for desperate measures rather than desperate bluster. So it's just like you said. So mm. there's this ambivalence, right? Yeah. And this kind of you know ambivalent. Uh, have congratulatory and have condescending comments. I think were made by Korean intellectuals as well. And uh, I found, you know, um, one uh, opinion uh, to be particularly interesting. So let me read it. Sure. Quote, the Japanese finance minister 
Taruasu responds with one word when asked how Japan has dealt with the pandemic so much more successfully than the West. Here was his answer, Mindo, literally meaning people's standards. And this is a complex term. Mindo is used in Japan to indicate national superiority and can be translated as cultural level. Aso's comment has proved controversial even in Japan right, with that nationalistic tone. And Aso has been criticized for propagating national chauvinism at a time when global solidarity is of prime importance. And then with pause, but if you remove its unfortunate nationalistic overtone, the use of the word mindo by the Japanese finance minister does highlight an indisputable truth, namely the importance of civility, of collective action during a pandemic. So when people voluntarily follow hygienic rules, voluntarily, there is no need for controls or enforced measures, which are so costly in terms of personnel and time. So this opinion was written by Byung Chul Han, who's a Korean-born German philosopher and cultural theorist. Actually, this piece, this particular piece I just read, it actually received less attention than his earlier writing. And his earlier writing mentioned uh, Asian states like Japan, South Korea, China, Hong Kong have an authoritarian mentality, which comes from their cultural tradition, Confucianism, and so people are more obedient than in Europe, so they have more trust in the state. That was his earlier writing, and this provoked so many Korean citizens' anger because of his use of the word, you know, uh, obedience, because it, you know, strengthens the stereotype that Korea is a flat place, you know, with just technical um, um, priority, but maybe not so much development in democratic uh, uh, state. So that really angered people, but then it got me into thinking again, basically Pyeongchul Han was making same kind of arguments when he was, you know, talking about civility versus obedience. Those mm. two had just different names. Mm. <laughs> so, so I right. came to, you know, really wonder yeah, when people were, you know, responding to so-called Asian authoritarian advantage narrative with a you know, so-called counter-narrative of civility, what are they really countering against? Hmm. Uh, I, I don't think anything is in, in, in being, being debated here. Yeah. And the thing is, uh, this kind of you know, um, apparent uh, competition between civility versus uh, obedience, I think it masks real question. The real question is you know, uh, when Korea or any other country seems to be responding with, as I said, with so many changes and so many rapidly changing standards of safety at whose cost and with whose responsibility and with what kind of, you know, again, definitions of risks uh, are we responding to this kind of pandemic? Those kinds of very complex questions uh, seem to be uh, absent when we sort of focus on this kind of flat question, is Korea mm. in general, as if it's static, yeah, uh, is mm. more open to a more civil? So uh, there's a lot in there, and I want to unpack some some more mm. of it, if that's okay. I mean, um, because these kind of cultural tropes, mm. these essentialisms, were at play all over the world. Mm. And it, you know, to me, it's unfortunate, but it's also this kind of um, some disaster research 
in the past has aspired also to talk in very very general way you know americans do this or Brits do that, Germans do this, these essentialisms, which are supposed to somehow be useful in a disaster because it allows us to count on certain kinds of responses. Mm. And so the idea, which I think could be very easy to, to, to authenticate if you were looking for it, that the United States um, had become a nation of uh, rule-defying, you know, crazy people and that that's just and that that's just the culture that's a, as, kind of like what what you read from the guardian that this is the british attitude we have to mm -hmm. do things our way there's an independence that i mean yeah you can find evidence of that there's plenty of video of people um you know going to state houses to protest mask mandates and things like that but there's far more people in america who participated in the lockdown willingly mm who still wear masks without a mandate, who've been vaccinated. It's not as high of a number as I would like. That's 64%, I think, of the population. But that's still, um, you know, a, that's a very large number of people. I guess my point is that these essentializing moves are very deceptive, but people do it anyway. And I wonder why. And I guess that's my question back to you. What, what, is, what purpose does that serve? Maybe bring it back to the Korean case. What purpose is served by either characterizing South Koreans as obedient or or civil, as if we needed a word, a single word, to characterize a whole complex country in the middle of a disaster? Why do people do that? Right. So, Scott, I am also asking that question to myself, of course. And now let me talk more about my other topic hmm. of my research. Uh, so it's about nuclear technology, as you introduced me. And uh, last year, I was advising a master's student, and he was trying to write a thesis on nuclear waste storage uh, in one Korean city, uh, a very small Korean city. And he was from Seoul, uh, capital. And uh, his question to me was, so... I wonder why these people in this small city in southeastern region of Korea, why are, are they not protesting against this storage, uh, you know, constructed in their town? And his immediate follow-up question was, is that because these people were bribed? I thought that question was quite interesting to be put by a person who just came to this small city for a field work all the way down from Seoul. He has never visited this small, this kind of small town before in his life. And um, I, uh, my, uh, I'll try to make a connection with that uh, uh, incident with uh, what's happening in Korea now. As I said, just last year, October 26th, 2020 in Korea, Confirmed cases of 90 people were something to be, you know, really alarming and shocking. People had to make sense that, oh, this is not really a Korean problem. If we can, you know, really stop those foreigners coming, you know, uh, foreign inflows like you, <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. then, you know, there, there should be less than maybe 20 cases and we are, you know, controlling this pandemic, unlike other countries, you know, we are doing fine. Those kinds of narratives were something people really wanted to believe in. And that's why the media was so active in, you know, differentiating the inflows and actually happening in what's actually happening in Korea. 
But you know, today, yeah, uh, more much more than you know, ninety confirmed cases happened. But you know, we don't really even know because you know those mm. cases are not reported um, in prime time news anymore. Uh, only I get those text messages from municipal government. But you know, the sum of national national sum is not broadcasted anymore. And also, even with so many confirmed cases um, happening daily, Korean government is talking about the so-called, uh, what's the word, um, living with corona, living with COVID strategy, right? And um, it's uh, being supported. And I guess my point is when people support the so-called living with COVID strategy uh, with the sort of uh, agreement that we are safe enough, yeah, our situation is safe enough. Uh, why do you think so? Why do you think differently when you were uh, back in uh, 2020, October 26th? Uh, I'm sure people have so many complicated reasons, not just one reason. Uh, uh, because, you know, uh, so many things were happening with those, you know, small business owners. And, you know, I got really concerned about Korean economy and also, you know, uh, maybe vaccines are working. Uh, even though there are so-called uh, breakthrough cases, I believe that we can control this risk. Right? So even uh, 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 by asking people this uh, simple question, why do we have different standards of safety last year and now? Uh, people's uh, answers are really complicated, but that kind of you know self-perception is not easily projected when we look at you know people living in other uh, region. So, you know, in this small city, uh, when people seem to be living comfortably with nuclear waste storage, that looks quite strange to a person who just came from Seoul. Right? Maybe they were bribed. Right? There must be a very simple reason. Right? Uh, I really appreciate how you've broken that down into the subnational mm. level, and I think it 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 really speaks to this you know problem of risk perception, mm. which again, if you you could try to characterize that nationally, mm. it that characterization is often doesn't work. It's it's mm. you know we'll have. I mean, I think to come back to the case of the United States, as I was trying mm. to you know explain earlier, I could look at California, Florida, and New York State and tell you three very different stories mm. about risk toleration mm. in COVID-19, or probably about risk toleration in, in nuclear waste storage, too. Mm. And, I, and so it seems like you're getting into some, some deeper and quite good STS mm. research terrain here about how risk perception then turns into policy, maybe even in the middle of a in the middle of a disaster, which I personally find extremely, mm -hmm. extremely fascinating. So I guess my question to you then is, as an STS researcher, how do you, how do you work on that in real time? Mm. I mean, throughout this, you know, discussion, we've been talking about the pandemic, but then you come in and you do a more fine grained, the pandemic in this period in 2020, a little later mm -hmm. in 2020, how it is now, 
risk perception mm -hmm. may be different. It's it's perceived differently in different parts of the country, but also national officials, as you said, they're not putting up the statistics anymore. That mm -hmm. means that those numbers are somehow no longer relevant to public needs for risk information. It's, it's no longer part of their perception. So I'm curious how you approach this problem, but also as a problem of a disaster in time. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. How do STS scholars do research in real time? Yeah, that is a great question. And um, I think this is a particularly interesting and challenging time for STS researchers um, because, um, you know, as STS researcher and uh, you're a historian, right? We uh, have seen so many cases so many historical cases and also theoretical discussions over how the scientific theory we choose are not, you know, determined by evidence. They are always underdetermined. So, you know, there are options really. We have more freedom than we think, even with the matter of uh, technical efficiency and also scientific facts, you know, uh, we have actually more plural effects than just one um, option uh, that is that needs to be inevitably chosen. So yes, uh, we do believe that we have choices. And then, um, you know, uh, I would like to talk about Korean cases, but you know, uh, before I do that, we can talk about the U.S. problem. <laughs> so deconstruction of facts, that's no longer an issue in the U.S., is it? Because, yes, uh, people do understand that um, some established scientific facts can be challenged. Uh, and they also have witnessed um, how bad kind of deconstruction can happen. Like right. climate change, is that really a hoax? Yeah. Just by asking those kinds of questions, whom does that contestation really benefit, right? So I, I guess uh, people still do care about facts even after understanding that facts can be, you know, socially constructed uh, and not just socially, um, all these contingencies are important in our acceptance of facts or, you know, as you said, toleration of risks or um, to our choice of not tolerating certain risks. So all those, those kinds of choices can be remade, but then after making one choice, we also need some faith I would say, right? Yeah. Some kind of belief system uh, that will not be so easily, you know, um, challenged or so easily put up to test. Or, you know, um, we need some, uh, I, I think people need some kind of standard yeah, when people talk about facts, right? Yeah. So you know, when, uh, when I said uh, this is a particularly interesting and challenging time for STS researchers, uh, as I, you know, begin began uh, with uh, uh, in, in in this talk, um, the standard seems to be too rapidly changing. That's that's my feeling, really. Yes, mm. and it's really confusing, right? Uh, I still remember how Korean CDC uh, was not really active uh, about promoting masks. I remember it, but then you know, um, it's kind of hard to remember all the, all those kinds of changes because you need to. Adapt right, to what's going right. on now. <laughs> right. So that that moving target um, mm. of science communication mm. has been weaponized. You'd use the term deconstructing facts a minute mm. ago, and um, 
I think, you know, that's what people who do the kind of research that you do are quite good at that, talking about mm -hmm. how a scientific fact is made and how it goes out into the world and does work and then how it can be deconstructed. But we've also seen what happens when that becomes weaponized, when that becomes mm -hmm. a tool of political partisanship or even a tool of war. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's not that different from your other work around sort of the communication problems of risk with nuclear power mm -hmm. and, and nuclear waste. Have you learned anything or do you think about that, that nuclear risk communication differently now? And, and I ask that for two reasons. One, because as you just noted, public health officials have had to change their story periodically mm -hmm. throughout the COVID pandemic, both in mm -hmm. South Korea and the United States. And also we've seen in this disaster, what happens when that uncertainty mm -hmm. becomes a, a tool, a cudgel from those mm -hmm. who would like to do damage to a, to a public health system. So that's documentable, but I wonder how that how you use that then? Like, what do you want to do with those findings? And how does that make you think about your previous work? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a complex question you put out quite nicely. Uh, so let me again comment upon my previous work. And this time uh, it's about uh, 2008 Korean protests over US-Korea free trade agreement. And um, the topic of contestation was especially of uh, the US BIP, which is known uh, at the time to many Korean people as risky objects um, that can cause, uh, you know, BSE, medical disease. And um, again, that was back in 2008. And uh, the political regime at the time was a uh, right-wing pro-American Inyongbak presidency. And uh, the truth in is, the truth in is of so-called safe US beef was um, vigorously attacked by citizens making street protests at that time in 2008. And Korean intellectuals were quite excited. STS researchers were also quite excited. And STS researchers in Korea wrote numerous articles discussing you know, how Korean citizens were so active in, again, deconstructing and reconstructing, you know, this powerful network of scientific facts, global standard of, you know, safe enough U.S. beef, U.S. hegemony, you know, pushing FTA, FTA, and the Korean right-wing government's authorities all together. Uh, however, I think the protesters' weapon was not this, you know, STS perspective of underdetermination. Uh, at that time, the protesters were really serious about, you know, the real risk of US beef, not, you know, any facts can be deconstructed. So when I interviewed, you know, protesters 10 years later, uh, most typical comments I would get from my interviewees was, you know, I feel really proud that I was part of that political resistance, yet the claim uh, that the US beef causes such serious health risk, that was never a significant driving force for me. Uh, and of course, I know that it is safe. Those were, you know, typical comments I would get. So now I don't know what's in their minds, right? But uh, what I can see is that, you know, um, even if some people really believed that the facticity of safe US beef was something, you know, that can be deconstructed and, you know, that is really underdetermined, at least now they don't want to, you know, publicly talk about it. 
at least. Yeah. Uh, so the thing is, again, you know, 10 years ago, Korean STS researchers were, they were so excited about the protests, not just because people were rising against this new right-wing government, but also because it seemed like you know, lay, lay citizens were questioning the transcendent you know, status of the fact as given, you know, outwardly mm. and written, some, something written in stone. So, you know, this, you know, scientific authority being, you know, reconstructed. Yet, is that really right? That was the question I kept asking to myself. And, you know, uh, not just is that right, but, you know, what STS research can really do, right? When some facts are being contested while certain, you know, areas of, um, how can I say, how certain boundaries of facts versus non-facts are still being kept. Some mm -hmm. questions are asked, but some questions are not asked. So those kinds of you know, still ongoing boundary work, how is that kind of selection being made and what kinds of questions are not asked? That's, I think, uh, what I really want to pursue yeah. when I uh, look at any kinds of risk issues, be it nuclear power, you know, BSE or COVID-19. You know, when you're describing those protests, uh, uh, two words that I don't hear come to mind are obedient and civil. <laughs> In other words, when you recapture when you recapture that history, mm. that's a pretty powerful correction to this notion again of um, some sort of society that falls into line whenever health authorities or whenever the United States government says, "Hey, this is just a risk you have to tolerate." Mm -hmm. Right, you're right. Yes, yeah. so Korean, you know, society does have uh, lots of memories of standing up against any kinds of, you know, uh, established authority. So that's probably why Korean people, especially after the so-called candlelight uh, uh, revolution uh, and this new regime, are reluctant to uh, accept any kind of comments that describes Korea as the continued place of Confucianism. But then, you know, again, uh, when sort of the same kind of comment is made with the congratulatory remark upon Asian civility, uh, it is still so well received. And also, um, it is right, uh, it, it is very, um, it is one thing to uh, resist against the political regime, but also, um, you know, the fact that scientific truth can be established. And if you were wrong about that, wrong about that, I said, yeah, then um, um, that was not important for you from the beginning. So that kind of, you know, rationalization is still based upon the firm understanding that, you know, there is a fact. That uh, there is something that's a fact. There is yeah. something, yes. <laughs> Let me just remind everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm having uh, a great conversation today with STS scholar, researcher, Hyoman Kim. And I want to turn to um, make sure we get this another topic I want to get to, which is vaccines. And um, I was talking with Emma Koval yesterday, the medical anthropologist who's based um, in Melbourne. And I've been thinking about that call a lot. She, she had just come out of something like, it's the longest lockdown anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, because the the Australian government had been pursuing a zero COVID approach, so they had mm -hmm. been an even more aggressive approach, um, or you might say an even lesser toleration of risk than South Korea. Um, but similar to South Korea, they had compared to some other countries, 
there was a long period of time in which vaccines were not available. Mm -hmm. And so that was also a factor in health decisions and public health decisions about whether or not to pursue the lockdown, what kind of tracking and tracing need to be put in place. So interesting cor uh, correlation there between Australia and, and South Korea. And I've been, so I've been wanting to ask you about this too, how you, I guess I want a sort of general question, like how you see the history of this COVID vaccine um, aspiration in South Korea. We're in a dramatic phase of it now because the vaccination rate has gone up incredibly dramatically in the last 30 days. Mm -hmm. But that's after a long period of many months of waiting and and quite slow movement. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, you know, how have you been tracking this? What are your thoughts about that? Are those mm -hmm. even the right words to use? I mean, I'm using time reference like fast and slow as if they have some real meaning in the world. They're always in reference to other places. So maybe you would use different words. But talk to me about your sense of the vaccine goal in South Korea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, personally, I was not really surprised by Koreans' uh, fast catching up with vaccination uh, because um, anti-vaxxer movement was never a you know serious social kind of uh, you know happening in Korea. Never. Yeah. Uh, there were some cases, but you know, um, usually those people were uh, not talking about inalienable individual rights. Uh, I guess uh, Korean anti-vaccine movements were much more about how some mothers are uh, showing concerns over their responsibilities if side effects happen to their kids. And also there was some connection with um, Korean traditional medicine. So those kinds of movements were generally regarded by larger public as kind of, uh, how can I say, retrograde, uh, not so modern uh, kind of movements. Uh, it wasn't uh, perceived to be, you know, uh, any kind, anything about political right. Uh, so Korea does not really have, you know, that kind of memory uh, with uh, anti-vaccination uh, in relation with uh, political kind of um, uh, arguments made against government or for government. Uh, and this time, um, this uh, uh, particular government, yeah, again, uh, it uh, won the election quite unexpectedly, right, after the impeachment. And uh, with a generally high approval rate, yeah, uh, the government uh, tried, I, I think it's best with tracking, but then uh, it was slow in uh, you know, uh, importing vaccine. So people are kind of waiting right, for the vaccine to come here. And then, um, of course, with Korean uh, system of uh, health insurance, right? Um, uh, it's available to everyone, and uh, Korean people were kind of used to uh, going to the hospital and you know getting uh, inexpensive care, and especially uh, they they are uh, uh, really used to this idea that the government is responsible, right, for providing us uh, affordable health care. So uh, the government not providing vaccine was an issue. Right? Providing vaccine uh, that was kind of expected. Right? But then again, uh, I, I want to emphasize this is, you know, again, not about compliance or civility or anything. And it's also not about Confucianism. I guess it has much more to do with, you know, 1970s uh, Korean health system established since 1970s. So the um, that period of, of waiting hmm. 
is one. I want to. I wonder if you can say a little bit more about that. How? So the anxieties within that period, and, oh. and, and how we discover those. Because mm -hmm. again, I think it's really important what you're what you're saying here. And I've heard some people comment on this that that say, "Oh well, you know, countries that are you know wealthy countries that don't have vaccine." Um, they're waiting, and so this once again proves, uh, you know, these ideas of civility, or that you know, why aren't people rising up in the streets and demanding vaccine? Well, it must be something cultural uh, about obedience or you know, deference to authority. Again, sort of reaching to, for these essentialist kind of explanations of, of it. Mm -hmm. um, but there have not been riots in the street, or I haven't seen mm -hmm. them in South Korea no. demanding COVID vaccine. But the but the anxiety is there. So I wonder how you're tr how you track that. Like, where do you locate that? Mm, mm, mm. Yes. Uh, if I uh, write about that in my next article, yeah, I would start with uh, the current administration and uh, the geography of uh, national level media first. Mm. How media discourses on vaccines, uh, especially pro government media, uh, newspapers and, you know, broadcasts, uh, they emphasized risks of vaccines before uh, vaccines were introduced to Korea. And I'm not saying that, you know, those risks are necessarily, you know, um, uh, I'm not saying that those risks are completely false. Uh, I'm not saying that those risks are uh, need to be accepted by everyone. What I'm saying is, you know, selective risks get to be emphasized depending on context, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it is true that uh, these these mRNA vaccines um, have gone through unprecedentedly short period of testing. That is true. Yeah. So I can kind of understand, you know, as a STS researcher, yeah, how you can sort of, you know, unpack some kind of risks. But then um, it really depends on, you know, who's making those kinds of remarks, right? Under what context and again, uh, whom does it benefit? Yeah. Right. And, and the, I wonder how you just, in terms of information, what, what do you think about the Korean biotechnology sector mm. in light of this, you know, waiting mm -hmm. period? Has mm. that... Um, do you think it now will rise to a higher level of national priority? I've been thinking about this on my own campus at KAIST. I wonder if you think about that at your at your campus, you know, uh, educational centers that receive government funding to be at the cutting edge of technology. Um, will it be acceptable to have another pandemic and not have a Korean produced mRNA vaccine? These are the kinds of questions I've been asking in these in these last months. I wonder what you think about that. Hmm. I think you should ask that question to, you know, uh, those life uh, science professors at KAIST, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. They should be really uh, asking those questions to themselves. And I also wonder uh, why they are not more active in, you know, uh, uh, presenting their positions to the national media about, you know, Korean possibilities or capacities of, of, or potentials of producing Korean-owned mRNA vaccines? Because uh, I don't see many. Uh, we hear a lot about um, therapeutic drugs, right? Mm -hmm. But right. about vaccines, maybe there are more others. Uh, as a previous 
bio major, I can have some speculation. But my question is, uh, you know, if you have some hurdles, why don't you speak about it? Right? Mm. Yeah. Is it about, you know, clinical trial? Do you need, you know, uh, maybe uh, different kind of regulation? Or do you need, you know, more governmental support or anything? Uh, it seems like, you know, uh, so many academic funding is these days channeled at least right, to something, you know, connectable to COVID-19 issue. But the really important question, right? right mRNA vaccine made by, you know, Korean biotech companies and um, uh, university professors. Um, uh, what seems to be the challenge, it's remarkably absent, I think. Right? Mm. And that's really surprising because, you know, uh, Korean uh, government is quite interested in promoting life science, of course. Absolutely. I, mm -hmm. I had this conversation the other day with a colleague. I was asking him the same question I just asked mm -hmm. you. And one of the things that kind of came out of that conversation was also just thinking about profit motive and that, you know, vaccines don't historically vaccines are not that's not a profit center for a pharmaceutical company. I see. Right. Mm -hmm. And but now right now, a company mm -hmm. like Moderna in the United States, I mean, they're they're minting billionaires weekly because of you know the the demand that's out there for this hmm. for this drug and so i mean that's one that's one layer of this maybe it hasn't been a national economic priority hmm. built on the assumption that if vaccines were needed in a large number that they would be made available globally hmm. and that it would be easier to purchase them in the global market which hmm. seems to have been the korean strategy in covid-19 I, I want to ask you just, I know you're not expert in, in this particular area, but I would mm -hmm. like to have your opinion on it. If you think the United States-Korea um, allyship, political relationship has been damaged or affected in some way mm -hmm. by the Biden administration's unwillingness basically mm -hmm. to make mRNA vaccines available mm -hmm. or to make mm -hmm. the intellectual property available mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. South Korea. Mm -hmm. Has it affected Korean U.S. Alliance. Relations, yeah. Relations. Well, mm, I am not sure uh, if we'll, it will make a serious impact yeah. because, um, uh, again, it's the, the national level media, right? Uh, uh, reporting certain things uh, more importantly and less importantly. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, when Korean people were waiting for the vaccine, um, you know, uh, Professor Han Jae-hwan, he also received that uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, it was quite well known that, you know, it was uh, uh, given by the U.S. government. Yeah. And then um, the uh, intellectual property issue that has been in the media a little bit, but I think much more people are, you know, much more interested in how Korean government is uh, trying to move ahead to this, you know, living with COVID-19 strategy and, uh, you know, the vaccine intellectual property is not becoming a politicized issue yet, but we are not sure. Yeah. So just a few minutes left mm -hmm. uh, on COVID calls today with Hyoman Kim, but I did want to get to, you just mentioned the living with Corona mm -hmm. strategy. Curious how you think that's going to play out, particularly somebody like you, who's always got your antennae up to like uh, uh, risk communication. And mm -hmm. I, if, if you look at how that's played out in other countries, that means the case number is going to go up. 
Now, I mean, I know there's a calculation here that the vaccination rate will allow the with Corona strategy people to be more out and about, um, more social, um, that maybe the vaccination rate has achieved a level that makes it where we won't have an increase in the infection rate. So it's unknown, mm-hmm. but that's certainly potential. And that maybe people, there'll be breakthrough infections for vaccinated people. So mm-hmm. I'm really curious to see how that plays out. And I guess it'll be rolled out here in Korea starting in November. What, yes, what yes. are you anticipating? Ah, yes, there will be so many complex factors interacting with each other, right? Yeah. It won't be just one change, but so many changes like, you know, uh, the opening hours of restaurants and so many other places and how many people can get together, right? And uh, also now with the so-called vaccine pass, right, where you can go uh, and um, even if you are not vaccinated, you know, you need to show that you are negative with your PCR results, things like that. Yeah. So with all those uh, combined factors, right, how will people change their behaviors and perceptions, right? Uh, or I can say is, you know, we really need to see what will happen in this winter, right? With uh, colder weather and uh, people um, usually staying in more confined areas. Yeah. But then again, uh, it's not just one factor, but uh, what I'm kind of worried, uh, what I'm kind of getting concerned is um, uh, when things go worse or better. Yeah. Mm. Again, it's, I, I think it, uh, there, there has been tendency, right, during this COVID p- pandemic yeah, uh, to seek kind of very simple explanation like this vector works, right? Yeah. And then that kind of explanation is not easily challenged because when you try to challenge that kind of, you know, simple explanation, you kind of, uh, you know, come up with another simple explanation, right? <laughs> right. It was not this, but that. Yeah, you trade one for the other. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing I'm kind of worried about because, you know, this is again, on um, um, very interesting and challenging time for STS researchers. And you know, STS research uh, has always been about emerging uh, relations, negotiations, and choices and complexities. But then, you know, uh, we really kind of want uh, when I when I say we people really kind of want uh, straightforward kind of explanations in times of crisis and confusions. So, what STS can do yeah, that really is a remaining question to me, and I think to you. I think it brings us back very helpfully to kind of where we started, which is to provide counter narratives to this idea that uh, of Asian uh, obedience to authority, mm-hmm. uh, again, as if Asia is some sort of, you know, scrutable place and we can say Asians are something just like we would say Americans or something, you know, mm-hmm. um, the correction to that doesn't just happen because people achieve some sort of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think there's that's work. I mean, I mean, I think that's that's conversation, you know, and the mm. kind of work that you do, um, which has to provide the the complex counter narratives to that. Mm. Mm. Right. Now, yeah. It's getting... not about congratulating or criticizing anything. It is really about revealing the multi-sidedness of everything, and uh, any kind of explanation is always partial, and we need to bring out the situatedness. I think that's what STS research can do. Well, finding policymakers who can take on board that kind of complexity and then mm. 
feel, feel confident bringing that to the public, that to me is one of the great challenges for STS. What, what we now hear used as term is engaged STS, I think very much aspires to be in the fight along those lines. So um, we need to wrap up, but let me just ask you just briefly, what, what are you working on now? Ah, yes. I am working on uh, how the notion of physical fitness has changed in Korea. Ah. So this time I am finally working on benefit, not risk. Okay. Wow. <laughs> well, COVID will have a role to, to play in that discussion, I suppose. Actually, yes. Yeah. Lots of people are interested in physical fitness. Yes. And uh, they are, uh, people are worried that, you know, COVID has uh, added some pounds uh, on their bodies. Right. Yeah. But then uh, what kind of exercises can be considered to be uh, safe? Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, gyms are now allowed to take people uh, who are vaccinated and people right. can run yeah, more than 6.5 um, <laughs> speed on treadmills. So again, the, uh, there are so many intersections of you know, government regulations, people's perception of safety, and what is good for their body and what is good for population. Everything. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can usually catch COVID calls at 6pm Eastern time. This week, doing a number of COVID calls uh, on Korea time, please join me at 530pm Korea time tomorrow for my discussion with uh, social psychologist Orla Muldoon will be talking about social psychology and the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so please do join me for that. And I want to thank my guest, Hyoman Kim. I knew this was going to be a lively conversation. I'm just such a fan of your work, and I really appreciate you taking time today to, to talk about this with me. Oh, thank you, Scott. Again, it was a nice conversation with you. And uh, uh, I look forward to speaking to you again uh, about any kinds of risk issues. All right. Stay, stay healthy, everyone, and we'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Mm -hmm.